Hello, welcome to another episode of the Ancient Warfare Magazine podcast. I'm Angus Wallace. In this episode, we're going to be looking at Volume 12, Issue 6, An Empire Under Pressure, Germanic Raiding and Invasion. Uh, beyond our patrons who are watching live. Hi, guys. With me to discuss the topic is uh, regulars Jasper Otage, Lindsay Powell, Murray Dam, Mike Cole and Mark DeSantis. So uh, to kick off, uh, the introduction to the theme of the magazine suggests that the Germanic tribes uh, along the frontier had been largely quiet. Um, now I can loop this in this question with one from one of our patrons, Cosma, to uh, to kick us off. Um, in the aftermath of the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest and the successful uh, revenge campaign of Germanicus that resulted in the death of Arminius, did the Empire enjoy a period without major Germanic raids? Uh, on the Rhine, yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, I mean, you could... Uh, even during the um, the Batavian Revolt, the Batavians actively tried to involve uh, Germanic tribes from across the Rhine into their revolt, um, and it doesn't seem to really have worked. Um, so, as far as we know, uh, it's always a good thing <laughs> to interject. Of course, it was fairly quiet. So, so why was there a change in the it's the early third century? Yeah, it starts in the in the early third century. Um, well, it's difficult to say why the Germans suddenly decided to to um, start raiding the empire. It because we, and of course we they didn't leave any sources or hardly any. It seems to be a, a combination of uh, opportunism. Uh, you know, the, if the Roman Empire is perceived as being weak. Um, that means that it might be attractive to go and find something there, because of course they've you know the third century you get the period of the soldier emperors and more or less constant civil war. Um, so the armies along the Rhine are uh, thinned out to make into campaign armies, and they go off into other areas of the empire. So it gets easier to right across the Rhine and there's less of a threat of a very, you know, um, a violent counter-reaction from the Roman army. Um, although it does happen uh, and, the, and the Romans show several times that they don't forget either. Um, so there's opportunism. Um, uh, it's, it's possible that there's, you know, um, uh, some kind of economic or um, like food pressure, I think there's a that's, we don't talk about it in the, in the issue, but I think there's a climate change that sets in in the, in the third century. It's possible that that's why they went and tried to get um, supplies and um, stuff from across the Rhine, um, and there seems to have been actual pressure from further east. Um, there's you know it's the Huns that end up dominating. Central Europe in the fifth century that start to come to push westward, and they push other tribes westward, which push other tribes westward, and you know it's a sort of a domino effect until you get to the Rhine and have to go somewhere. I actually I don't have a, an answer, but I have a question <laughs> uh, that I would like to add on, if it's okay. Um, uh, is uh, 
in these 300 years, uh, one of the things that I think we'd all agree is occurring is you're having intercourse between German communities along the Rhine, both sides of the river and Roman garrisons, right? You're having Absolutely. slow, you're having Germanization, right? There's that famous letter of the Roman homes complaining that his son is wearing trousers like a German and won't wear the toga of Aurelius. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly what that what, what that letter dates to. Um, is that intercourse, is that Germanization and the demysticization? So there's a lot more understanding of um, Rome's relative position by the Germans. And there's a lot more um, intimacy between Roman garrison communities and German communities along the Rhine. Does this play a role in uh, familiarity breeding contempt or in a sense of German feeling, Germans feeling they have a right to uh, their place inside Roman territory that influences the restarting of raids 300 years later? I don't know a right, but I think it certainly is, it breeds a familiarity, um, whether, whether that's contempt or not, or just knowledge of what's going on inside the empire, and therefore it, it burgeons opportunism, as in, well, we know where the garrisons are. I mean, we've got, we've got little bits and pieces of evidence, like Nero sending... Um, you know, a freedman to the Baltic coast to gather all this amber. And you're like, that's a long journey for a Roman trader to make. Um, you know, and he goes with, um, as far as we know, very little bodyguard. So there's like this deep penetrating merchant mission in the 60s AD. Um, that means there's contacts, there's contacts, there's relationships. We've got the development of the runic futhark around that time in the first century AD as well. So it's a it's a two way street of Romanization and Germanification, uh, all the words. Um, and so I think it, it's absolutely there are people in the Roman side of the uh, sorry in the Roman side of the Rhine and on the German side of the Rhine that know quite intimately what's going on inside the Roman Empire through trade and networks and all of that sort of stuff, uh, which means that when the denuding of the of the Empire frontier happens, they know about it, and that information spread, I would imagine. It, yeah. It's probably, in, in this whole discussion, important to remember that, you know, we tend to think of the Lima as the border of the Empire as a hard border. Uh, you know, it's uh, sometimes some, you know, we think of Hadrian's Wall, which, you know, if you think in modern times, it might even be like the Iron Curtain. It's like, bang, here's here's the border. This is the empire. That's not, um, you know, Game of Thrones like it's a hundred meters high wall. It, it's it's a it's much more of a, a really big zone. And the Roman Empire certainly does not. um stop thinking of the areas across the Rhine as um, outside the empire or uh, not under uh, Rome it doesn't give up like a claim to those to those lands um, you know these people are all like it's it's yeah it's there's endless debate you know is this is this border is, is the is the Limas meant is this just sort of a control difference? You know, it's just just a way to funnel traders, for instance, through certain points so that you can tax them properly and you can keep sort of control of what's going in and out? Or is this really like we're keeping the barbarians out? There was also the development of 
tribal confederations, larger, you know, smaller tribes were being grouped into the Franks or the Alemanni and the, the larger, these larger tribal confederations were more formidable opponents for the Romans. Uh, going to the period of a question of, of was uh, Rome more vulnerable and how much would the Germanic peoples across the Rhine have, have known about it, uh, the Roman Empire was suffered uh, terrible, terribly from plagues. For example, the plague of 251 uh, cost many, many lives uh, among the uh, ordinary people of, of the Roman Empire. And it, it can't be, it had to have been known how badly Rome had suffered by people outside of the empire and that there, there must have been depopulated districts. There must have been, or, or, or simply that, that possibly the frontier garrisons had been weakened and that probably would have attracted uh, raiding groups who uh, saw the opportunity to attack a weakened uh, Rome. Well, even when, even when vast populations of, you know, entire nations of Germanic tribes are invited to settle, in areas of the of the the Balkans and places, there must have been huge tracts of depopulated land. You know, how do you how do you invite several hundred thousand, uh, you know, barbarians in and say, right, this is your area, you settle here? That sort of um, implies that there was huge tracts of land available to them, and not, you know, there wasn't there wasn't the forced removal of locations or the, you know, these are not these are not. Um, the wilds of, of some of the other sort of uh, similar ways of treating populations. Um, so it's quite amazing. Um, but I think also knowledge of that would have been widespread on, you know, on the barbarian side. The thing I keep recalling is um, on bases in Iraq, uh, we would have um, almost no Muslim Iraqis working for us as coalition forces. Um, Iraqi um, Marianite and Phalangite sort of um, Syriac Christians that would work on post. And I'll never forget one of the hardest things about it was, you know, you work with these people day in and day out and you form friendships with them. And then you would get other people on post who would be like, you know, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're telling this guy where you live. He's going to count off the number of paces to your hooch and he'll be able to call in mortar fire or rocket fire on you um, or, or tell a sniper who you are you know, outside the wire, um, that kind of d- dichotomy and our sort of this desire on the part of us to make to form relationships and be friends with the people we were with and this constant fear that you never knew who was an intelligence agent for the enemy, maybe even not for ideological purposes, but simply because this is how they fed their families. And I keep thinking that there had to be a similar dynamic to some extent on the Rhine border, you know, where you have Romans taking uh, German wives or, um, you know, forming friends with local populations. And then this kind of tension between, well, is this person uh, really, you know, uh, loyal to the empire or friends of the empire? Or are they going to, you know, use this for their own, uh, for their own advantage? I wonder if that same tension existed. Well, that, that's an interesting point. We've got a, a question not uh, on a similar lines from one of our patrons, Andrew, who, asks if uh if uh germanic peoples who were sort of settled in, in, in uh on the roman in roman centers and participating in uh uh sort of roman ways of life but but close to the borders did they take part what happened to them in the uh in the large scale raids um 
Or, or did they stay separate or did they join the uh, Germanic Raiders? Do we have any idea? Yeah, we do. Um, there's, actually, there's, there's an article in, in the issue uh, that um, describes how one German who lived uh, around Trier, so just on the western side of the Rhine, uh, he took it upon himself as a sort of a vigilante to uh, to raid the camps of the raiders, and he would just go in there at night and uh, cut some throats and come back in the morning and say, "Look what I got." Um, and similarly, uh, the uh, the famous crossing of the Rhine in in 406, the Franks who lived on near on the border actually uh, attacked the uh, the coalition. So there is. Um, there's definitely evidence that you know it, it, that this is not a homogenous mass of all barbarians coming at Rome. It's uh, it, there's there's degrees, and uh, and you could argue that in some cases you know these these Germanic peoples had Romanized to a great degree, and perhaps knew a good thing when they saw it, or they they felt like hey we're here now and we don't want you. Don't come and mess it up. And I think coming back to to, to Mike's point, um, I think we we know several of the Roman leaders, Arminius obviously being the most famous, but even in later periods, where individual barbarian leaders have knowledge of Roman institutions, Roman uh, tactics, Roman you know they have they are they are Roman officers, and they then betray their Roman colleagues in order to return to their um, tribal colleagues. So we know that in, you know, uh, Fritigern, for instance, and things like that, where they've been invited and they've been given these privileges. So I think when the trials happen, we learn about them. Do we have evidence of of German raiders punishing Romanized Germans as collaborators? Because that was one thing we saw all the time Mm -hmm. in Iraq. I don't think so. And that... That possibly also... that, That... presupposes sort of an understanding of maybe a, a nationhood or cultural unity that I'm not sure we can uh, apply here. Well, I was going to ask about, we were t- you were using the phrase uh, Germanic. Uh, you know, is there, a, is there a certain ethnicity we we can apply to these people, uh, tribes, or, you know, or are we just being very fast and loose with, with the term? <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that... It, Probably Romans being fast and loose. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because they are barbar- they're all barbarians, and then when one crosses and establishes itself, we suddenly uh, the differentiation handles the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Goths, uh, you know, the Alamada, and then and with and yet within those, you start to get, uh, for instance, when the Goths invade before Adrianople, you get their Goths, but they're also Herules, there are Alans, there are lots of subsections, but they are still all under the same kind of blanket term. Um, but and yet at the same time, you get the Visigoths, you get the Franks, who obviously establish Francia um, and and France after that. You know, because again, because of the weakness of the um, of the of the Roman Empire at the time. And the Alamanni give so Germany they, they, their name. They kind of take on. Absolutely, you know there are there are name there are there are tribes which do things which uh, give names to down to our you know modern day, and yet at the same time they're all barbarians because they're not Roman or not recognised as Roman, 
even though we're arguing now that they're they're much more Roman than the Romans would have would have would have allowed. So, I, I think from a from an academic point of view nowadays, it's it's probably very difficult to uh, to separate any any tribes. I assume that some, you know, if there is any evidence of writing, then it'll be all. You know everything we know about their languages is going to be it fits in the Germanic language group, um, and and archaeologically I think it's I I doubt it'll have changed very much. Will have not yeah I doubt it'll have changed very much since like the the difference between Celts and Germans sort of along the Rhine is very difficult to make archaeologically. You can't. You can hardly separate them. I suppose the same goes for uh, for groups later on. I certainly know that was the case at the time of of Caesar. Um, uh, reading De Bello Gallico, I know that you you really you're basically talking almost about one ethnolinguistic group, or it's so impossible to untangle. I did not realize that was the case uh, so much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's funny. I think the, the Romans can appeal to specific. So the Kimbra, the Teutones. Um, who you know are, are rampaging in the 120s BC until they're defeated by Marius in 102 and 101. That memory is 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 you know brought up time and time again, even when the tribes involved aren't related to the Cimbriotones, who are essentially wiped out. Um, you know that 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 sort of fear of the German barbarian um, is brought up again and again and again, uh, even though they're not specifically the same. The Romans get traumatized an awful lot. You know, first it's the Celts, and then they, and then yes. they carry that with them for a couple centuries, and then there's the Germans, and they basically never get over it. Well, I wonder if, uh, as all our sources are kind of one-sided, if they needed for them to be like something, you know, the, the, those sources. So it's a very distorted view that we get because there's some sort of internal propaganda going on within our sources. No, I think that is an excellent point. Um, there's a, mm. and uh, uh, for me, of course, everything goes back to Sparta. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a Swiss historian, um, <clears throat> François Ollier, writing in the 1930s, comes up with this notion, le mirage spartiet, the, the Spartan mirage, this idea that because we literally have no sources from the Spartans, uh, except for tiny poetry fragments of dubious provenance, really everything we understand about them comes to us from mostly from Athenian eyes. Um, and mm. you're telling me we have an almost exact identical situation here uh, for reckoning Germans, is that everything comes externally for, uh, from them. Is that correct? There are, there, are, there are sources that are filtered. You've got Giordanes and later writers who clearly have gained some understanding of um, the various tribes, and they actually differentiate. You know, the, he was from this tribe, and he was from that tribe, and he was from this tribe. But it's almost how much does that filter um, distort? Uh, and well, not that it would have mattered to the to the to the Roman. Um, <laughs> well, you could argue that the Romans, you know, there, there's very few Spartans who join uh, uh, who join Athen- Athens and become part of that society. And that, that you know, by the time um, you know, the sixth century Roman authors look back, there are going to have you know they they might even have Germanic ancestors in some way. They they would probably not admit it, but um, there is a there is a more of a mixing going on. There is more much more integrated society. 
So this is not, this is not, we're not dealing with a German mirage. This is something very different. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it depends, uh, yeah. It probably also depends on the, on the period. I think by the time that the, the, the barbarians are integrated within Roman society, they want to stress their Romanitas rather than their Germanitas, I suppose. So the kind of, you know, the sacking of Roman 410 by Alec and, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff is, is, and even when you're reading the poetry of Claudian and things, the Romanness is emphasized because we want you to be Roman because we've accepted you rather than your, your, um, your barbarian aspects are kind of glossed over. And then they behave like a barbarian and sack Rome as you do. Um, and it's sort of like, Oh, we have to, we, they kind of, yeah, they kind of ignore that, but it is, it's an internal, it's an internal propaganda. Uh, I think absolutely. But even earlier, um, you know, you have internal propaganda, in the sense of reassuring Romans. So after that denuding of all of the armies in the 3rd century, when they do the same thing in the early 4th century and they denude the frontier armies to fight civil wars, there's a, a whole series of uh, coin issues which seem to be you know, a, a fabulously immediate way of giving propaganda to your population that the, the borders of the empire are still being looked after, um, despite the fact that we've actually taken all the men from them to fight each other <laughs> there's a couple we're of guys still, in that fort there yeah yeah we're still looking after you know well how many guys do you need in a watchtower i mean you know they're a, they're a quarter apart they're all along the rhine frontier one guy it's like a thousand guys it's like less than a legion it's fine we're looking after the border um so uh you know and it, you know and that that's also if it's a permeable border anyway then a watchtower well they can let us know that they've you know that they've through and we're we're on it but um, you know that uh, that's always uh, an interesting one. So I think you're right. There is internal it's propaganda. It's defense in depth. You know, it's a it's a conscious choice. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, to move us on again, Chris, one of our. Think, oh, 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 I had a lovely. I, have a, I had a lovely boxing analogy. Go on then. Oh, Crack on. I was going to say that it's ba- it's it's basically the Roman roper doper tactic that they let the bubs in they take a few blues to the face and then they exhaust themselves and by the 12th round the romans muhammad ali come back and wipe them and that works sometimes and then (laughs) and then other times they get smashed and they lose big chunks of the empire for large periods of time chris one of our patrons asked was fundamentally was these raids fundamentally different um you know from the ones in the three nineties BC, uh, you know, are barbarians barbarians? Well, without real statistics to show how big they were, <laughs> what was going on, that's it's hard to say. It, it does seem to me that the raids by Germanic peoples over the Rhine frontier and probably even the Danube, uh, it, it probably was a, a, a lot of different things. But it, it strikes me as being a lot like the. Viking raids of uh, later centuries where these were not necessarily uh, whole tribal level, national level, I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, attacks. That is, these were groupings of uh, young warriors collecting around a uh, particularly uh, noteworthy, uh, you know, fierce leader who uh, could lead them well and get them loot. And I I think that um, probably... We should also make a distinction between the kind of raids that various Germanic peoples uh, went on during, say, the 3rd century and the 4th century. And then what we see in the early 5th century where you have uh, relatively large 
groups of people crossing the Rhine and then uh, going to, for example, the Visigoths going to southern France and the Vandals are in Spain and then they cross to Africa. That is, I, I still don't think that these were necessarily, for example, the all of the Vandal people went to uh, Spain and then North Africa, but it does seem to me that you probably, they, they differed in, in, in not just in degree, but in kind, where you had extremely large groups uh, that were able to establish themselves for long periods of time over wide areas, which itself was also, I think, a testament to the weakness of the Western Roman government at the time, that is, that they could not... But they're looking to stay. Now, that's the difference later on. They're, they are looking to stay. I mean, we have some inscriptions from the 3rd century where, where a Roman army intercepts a, a raid that's, you know, it's got full of lots of booty, and they're trying to get back across the Rhine, and they're intercepted. That's that's clearly a different thing. I don't know if this is germane or not, but uh, what's, interesting, it, what's interesting is, for example, if you then transpose that back to the first second, uh, first second, second, blah, get my teeth in order, first century BC. There you go. That's what I was trying to say. Finally came out. Um, is, is the issue there really, I think, uh, of just the uh, raids for purposes of gathering b- b- booty and loot. Uh, for example, Lollius uh, crashing into a bunch of uh, Germans by accident and, and losing his eagle in, in, in 17 BC was purely down to uh, economic um, incentives rather than any kind of territorial gain. Uh, what was interesting is how it then provoked the Roman response to stop this, because it was one of many going back over several decades, uh, that actually led to the Romans um, counteracting to be able to prevent any more of these economic raids. So, in fact, it provoked the Roman response to conquer uh, as, a, as a preventative ma- measure. I just, I just want to say the caveat, which I'm sure we all agree with. Are, are, are barbarians barbarians? Of course not. We are talking about very loose ethno-linguistic groupings for huge swaths of people over several centuries. These are this is like saying are all Native Americans alike? Uh, you know, you have you have desert-dwelling Hopi sedentary people. You have plains-dwelling Lakotas. You know, it's the same thing here. These are you know. I just want to make sure that we say to, to the listeners, of course, that we are dealing with extremely varied people, and the term barbarian is a an outward-looking term that. Romans and, and uh, Hellenized people are using to group them together. Uh, on, on the other hand, on the, on the other hand, I, I do wonder that there's a kind of a pecking order. Uh, so, for example, one barbarian, as, as the Romans or Greeks might call them, is more terrifying than another one. And I go to go back to my first-century BC analogy. I mean, the Swabi were everybody's enemy, and the people southeast of the uh, southwest of those people constantly migrated away from them. Um, and in fact, some of the, the raids over the Rhine were caused because they were terrified by the awful, even awful people be, behind them. And in fact, on the other side by the Danube, there was, I think, Florus describes the Sarmatai as being so awful, there's basically no word in the Latin language that it can encapsulate the, the horror of it. Um, so I just wanted to say there's a kind of pecking order. The picking the picking order changes because you get the, well, they're bad. Yeah, but they're nothing like the Sarmatai. Mind you, I think the, you know, the... the I think Mike's right. We, the barbarian is a internal Roman and Greek way of looking at the other. So they are used this one term of the barbarian, meaning the barbaroi, meaning they don't speak our language, then not like us. So I think in, in many terms, the the differentiation between the the differences between tribes in terms of cultural practice, in terms of you know decoration, in terms of all of those styles of warfare, are 
we've we've recovered them in a way that the the Romans wouldn't have been interested in noting, other than they're different. You know, they all they all chop heads off, they all hang them from their saddles. Well, they don't, but that's kind of you know this this uh, way that they're looked upon because they're barbarian. Um, and we see these things in archaeology and through various subtle. I love the I love it when the people look at, look at the language and what we would write as a typo, uh, which is obviously much more um, difficult to do when you're handwriting. And people go, well, no, that's actually a survival of that's a survival of their language group in an, in a wider language group because the people from this tribe only make that spelling mistake. Therefore, it's a sign of their language. You're like, oh my god, that's cool. But yeah. um, Murray, I, I wonder though, I, I I wonder whether we overplay the barbarian word usage. So when I've been researching all these books uh, that I've done, and, and a lot of other work has taken me to look across the Rhine to Germania, uh, specifically, I, I don't find a lot of use of barbari or, or whatever the Latin equivalent of barbarian is in any of the Roman sources. What they tend to refer to is the name of the tribe, or as I prefer to call them, the natio, the nation. Um, and because the Romans like to label things quite precisely. It, it's part of them showing off that we kind of control these things. We have a name for them. Uh, and in fact, Germani is, is a concocted name which the, the people of that area didn't call themselves. From what I understand, it was Julius Caesar coined the phrase for some etymological reason. It sort of, on the one hand, means uh, same or other. On the other hand, it's a sort of like a collective. But again, it's the Roman mentality imposing order on a chaos across the way there. We've given them a name, we, we, we can therefore order it. Uh, and so on. But I, but I haven't seen much use in Tacitus or Suetonius or any of the sources I've used for this expression barbarian. I think it's more a modern usage. I know it's 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 certainly in it's certainly in Ammianus and the later sources to talk about the barbarians. Um, but even even the Marcellinus is practically medieval, isn't he? He's, uh, what year is he? Uh, does he write uh... He's mid mid fourth century. Three seven two. He you know he he record he records the Battle of uh, Adrianople and then. We're not sure what happens to him after that. So he's certainly he's certainly fourth. Mike is right. It's medieval. <laughs> yeah. It's post post second century AD. Therefore, it's it's outside my. Yes, period. it's medieval. Um, Possibly yeah, medieval. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I, I'm interested in ancient history. I had a point to make. I had a point to make before, and I can't remember what it was. But it was something to do with what Mike was talking about. And I can't remember it. Um, which I think is, you know, that idea of labeling is interesting, of course, because the Romans' labeling is not the the. Um, the men themselves laughing. Oh, that's what it was. It was about plunder raids. Um, so you get that idea later in Ammianus and others that this is different because their women and children are coming with them. They are populations relocating, whether because of population pressure further east or for whatever reasons. It's a it's a population shift, not a not a raid by warriors only. The other thing that you've got in several instances is kingship disputes within tribes even to the point where tribes split because of a kingship dispute and a, a king candidate proving themselves goes on a raid to gain reputation to gain wealth even in some cases to gain a set of allies by by joining the roman army and uh, becoming um, part of the roman auxilia therefore they are gaining reputation gaining followers gaining wealth that then they can take back across the line uh, Danube and become more uh, kingly and more 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 of a acceptable candidate, if you like. So again, if you go back to Tacitus and his description of the Germans, I mean, he talks about those things you've just said that that the need for 
uh, a, a man to uh, make himself the sort of the war chief. But he's he goes on these ways to show his masculinity, his power, and so on. And uh, some of them um, change with every campaign season in certain nations. In others, they become like a almost like a a, a Latin or a Greek king, and they they live for a generation until they die. So it very much is specific to the the community and the people that you're talking about, isn't it? The 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 Alia in three ninety. I, I know I know that's way back, but I, I've always viewed that as a kind of root trauma in the Roman psyche, like the, the sacking of Rome by these barbarians, uh, I guess. But they always called them the Gauls. They always called them Gauls. Yeah. All right. So the sacking of Rome by the Gauls um, yeah. is this defining moment um, in, in the Roman psyche. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how that impacted um, sort of how the Romans viewed the, the the well, you said the they don't call them the Germans, but how they viewed this way or how they, these this, the description of these of this horrible terrors of this sort of institutional fear. How much of that is sort of a, a cultural throwback to that to that root experience, or has that completely faded from Roman cultural memory at the time we're describing? Oh, I, I don't think it's faded. I, I would imagine it's part of their sort of war mythology. They layer a cake of, uh, of of reasons for going on their outward. Conquest, but at that time, I mean, the, you know, Romans are really in, in, in Italy, and and they're building their alliances with other tribes. And I think what that probably promotes is um, emboldening of treaties, so that you can call upon allies when you're in need of help, and they come to your aid. And I think that's one of the characteristics of of the Roman approach to politics, diplomacy, and war which is different than other people, that you don't have to be conquering people in the first stages. You can actually work with partners and allies and so on. And then it sort of becomes then the problem with those allies thinking, hold on, we're providing a lot of the cannon fodder here. We don't seem to be getting a fair share of the gains. And they have a social war and then eventually under Marius, it's kind of soft. But but, but I think Romans remember in the sort of collective memory these losses. They remember Arausio. They remember the first, second and third Punic Wars. Uh, and, and of course, it's part of their. Uh, we've talked about this in other uh, podcasts. Of their strength is their ability to come back in, in the face of those terrible defeats. Um, and in the case of the Gauls, I mean, there's is the the, the Capitoline geese or something, isn't it? They, they 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 sort of bleat and they save the city and all sorts of great things. So they they clearly have the backing of their gods. That there there's there's a divine driving force here as well as part of their mythology, as opposed to the dogs who didn't bark. <laughs> Well, the Gauls had cut their tongues out. So uh, there was a religious, there was a religious procession. There was a religious procession every year where they crucify a dog um, and lead a goose around on a on a cushion to uh, basically show that the dogs had betrayed them and that the the geese had not. And that's part of the cultural memory that you're talking about too, Mike. That that every year, you know, a thousand a thousand years later, they're still having this ceremony. Um, to say this is what happened, but you know, even Claudian in the in the fourth century is recalling Marius and the Germanic invasions because it's a similar parallel. And I think that the as the as the empire goes on and becomes even more removed from its its republican past, they refer back to republican events to say, see, we are the same. We're having the same issues that you know that that that, that they had. We are we are Roman. We are Rome. Um, well, their mythologies, of course, is they are the res publica right to the end, aren't they? It's it's, it's always the Roman. Well, right till for, right till fourteen fifty three, according to uh, the you know the fall of Byzantium, because they still call themselves the Romanoi. 
Um, whereas we're the ones who split them out. In Greek, yeah. Um, yes. Shush, 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 shush with your, with your, your nitpicking Greek Latin. We're all Roman, um, unless you're barbarian, in which un- until we assimilate you and then you are, you know, you're Roman. Or- barbarian, barbatus. Well, the, the, the wonderful thing is the way in which, for example, the conquered or annexed or uh, Romanized provinces, of course, as part of their very process of being pacified and being Romanized, will adopt exactly those same calendar of festivals and events and, and, and blend them in even with their own. So it, it becomes part of a sort of collective history. You then get the Roman emperors who are, in fact, uh, you know, the Ostrogothic emperors, and you know, which kind of then melds, and we're definitely into the medieval period by that point. But, um, you know, that, that blurring of the lines... Uh, is part of the problem. And, you know, I think, you, as you said, you know, the, the Romans' ability to recover has all been what marks them out and then, you know, to be old-fashioned until Adrianople where they don't really recover again um, and the West is lost, um, giving seeds for fantasy writers forevermore. Um, so. <laughs> so if we're looking at this ability to recover and to uh, segue into a... Into a, a into another another question how do they prevent or how do they stop uh the rage they seem to launch deep penetrations onto the other side of the rhine is that right i'm seeing some of these ridiculously deep it, it it's 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 date and time specific so my period's first century bcad and i would say that for example uh, so julius caesar famously crosses the rhine twice and go some depth in, and he's really doing it partly for propaganda reasons. But there's also the allies, the UBE, who are saying, we have these sway be behind us, and we're terrified. Will you please help us? And they kind of go and deal with that. And ultimately, um, I think it's under Marcus Agrippa, the UBE will be brought across the other side of the Rhine, where they will be founded in a city called Oppidum Ubiorum, which we know better now as, as Cologne. So uh, there you actually have a Roman interventionist policy, which is actually, first of all, to come to the aid and keep them away, and then actually to in- integrate them into Roman society, and they provide men for units and so on much later. It, it, it really, and I go back to this Lollius uh, interaction, um, because it became known as the Clades Lolliana, which is the, the, the Lollian uh, disaster, and that was several years before um, viruses in roughly the same kind of geography, that um, the Romans actually make a point to finally go into the, the, the Rhineland area and beyond. Um, and, and what seems to have happened is that they would, first of all, pick on the people who were responsible for the raids. So it would be the Sugambri, the Eusipites, I think Tenteri, for example. And then when they had dealt with those, they would either just camp out the season or they cross the Rhine again, for example, under Nero Drusus. And then they come back the following year. Um, and then really under Nero Drusus, you get an, an attempt to drive a, a logical west-eastward campaign which is expressly for conquest and annexation and the interaction with allies, and they get to work with the Canandifates and the Batavi and the other people and so on. And it really goes all the way through to Tiberius to try and uh, to, to bring some uh, order to all of that, but it all goes horribly wrong, and I'm sure you've covered it already with Arminius. But um, it really is only until 15, 13, 14, 12 BC that you get a positive uh, policy to go there. The impression I have from the source is the Romans really had no particular desire, no particular want or need even to cross the Rhine. Um, They had people trading. There's a a story in one of the sources, I think it's Florus, um, where people going across uh, centurions were captured and crucified and terribly badly treated 
Um, you know, and of course, this, this causes uh, the requisite outrage. So there's a casus belli if you need one. Um, but they don't always respond. They can be provoked, but they say the calculus doesn't work out for us. And finally, with Lollius, I think August, Augustus is teased off and says, enough already. We actually are going to deal with this. Now. I think the fact is that, you know, again, we have the problem from Tacitus to Ammianus. We don't have a source, really, that deals with it in any decent depth. We have Cassius Dio. Um, but I think the fact is that I think the deep, the deep penetrating raids to us Romanitas in the depths of the you know, the barbarian nations does continue. It's just it's very hard to establish from the source material. So, for instance, in Domitian's Germanic War, we have virtually nothing surviving. There's four stratagems of Frontinus that cover it and a couple of other things. But that's the same thing, is that they march 120 miles over the Rhine, punish, establish a Roman camp, and then leave. But the whole idea of establishing a Roman camp deep within the territory is... We were here, we can come back. You know, the fact that you have a Roman camp in your territory shows you that we are the, we are the powerful ones. And then you get the same, you get the same with uh, Trajan's uh, penetration to the Dacian capital. Um, those sorts of raids, um, the, the article in the magazine about uh, Thrax, the, the Roman Empire and the new discovery, only in, only in 2008 of the new battle, you know, which is deep in, uh, in territory. So I think that those, those things continue, but you're of centuries where the the source material for us is so confused and you know when you look at the scriptores historiae augustae that it just uh it's like uh who can tell what's going on with what's true what's not um you know it's the real invention of of, of alternate facts and uh, and uh, you know um fake news because there's whole biographies in there that you're not sure um and i see like uh, two days ago a coin of electus was found in kent which is only the 24th Electus coin ever found, which again is that taking advantage... A gold one. Yes, indeed. Uh, that taking advantage of the weakness of the empire. You know, in the third century, you have a the foundation of a, of a British empire um, when they break away from the Roman Empire. You know, the Gallic Empire, the British Empire, uh, lots of breakaway units, even Palmyra, um, break away um, when Rome shows itself being weak. So... Even internally, Rome breaks apart, let alone allowing barbarians to, to cross the Rhine. So I think it's two things. Um, one is the deep penetrating raids. The second is having groups of barbarians on the border areas to be like an absorption rope-a-dopa sponge to take the hit whilst Rome recovers, Rome, real Rome. But the problem is, of course, that as those tribes on the border have been there for long, they are, they are Roman, and therefore they're not... Uh, expendable in the way that they were when they were brought across. Um, so that's that's one of the issues. So I was going to throw in the, into the mix there, for example, uh, I'm looking at a map here, one of the books I did uh, about Germany, as it turns out, um, is the role of um, allies and client kings. So, for example, uh, the, uh, under Augustus, there was a temptation, I think, that, yes, there were lands that you had direct control over, but there was the indirect control over an area that might be considered a generation before as barbarian, but because of a client-king relationship, like a Herod, uh, like a Diotaras or someone, that uh, to all intents and purposes is Roman. And then there are uh, treaty allies that you have across the Rhine, for example, the Canaanifates, the Chauci, the Angrivari, the Marcomani, and finally the Hermunduri. What wonderful names. Um, and Augustus can look at those people as long as the kings or the, the warlords have actually come to them, people like Milo or the Sugambri, for example, 
and shown the proper sort of uh, deference, homage, and just respect that he as a, as a commander-in-chief deserves, um, he, he sort of could pass off those areas as, as Roman. Um, and, and it's an odd sort of idea. It's a sort of a, 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 there's a real empire and there's a virtual one beyond it, which is kind of under Roman control. Um, so, so again, they're not thought of as barbarians. They're thought of as loyal allies. And uh, if, for example, amongst the um, the uh, Karuski, for example, uh, Inguiomaris, as I as I remember, I think is the uncle of Arminius, is a very respected commander in his own right, certainly under the period of Germanicus. And they're very disappointed that he sides with his nephew because they thought he'd always been a good sort. Um, and, and they're allies to, until they rebel, and then they're horrible, horrible barbarians who we destroy. Um, so you know. Uh, but 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 Romans will rehabilitate. This is the interesting thing. So, for example, people like Mar- Marbolius, uh, interestingly, um, for example, uh, had in the sort of period between the, the first German wars and the Teutoburg disaster, um, had had assumedly left Rome and had gone off to become the king or the leader of his Marcomanni, and had moved his people sort of eastwards. And Tiberius was charged with, you know, eliminate them, knock them out of the game, take their part, of it, and basically encapsulate that whole area across the Rhine. And what's very interesting is that uh, halfway through the campaign, there's the Balkan revolt, and then Tiberius has to pull back and make a sort of nominal treaty with uh, Marbodius. But but transfer later into time where you have the Teutoburg disaster, Arminius sends the head of uh, Varus to Marbodius and says, look. See, I've got the head, join us. And he doesn't. He honours the treaty with Augustus. He sends the head back. And, and Varus's head is, is buried in the, in the mausoleum as a family, the Quintilii. So what I'm saying is, is that you can actually have a barbarian who, by going back and saying, I made a mistake, I fess up, I stand by the treaty, the Romans will rehabilitate it. Uh, to, a, to a point, and I think by the 4th century that's not happening, and I think it's also coming back to your point, Lindsay, about the fact that the Romans make a treaty with you, you're their ally, you're Romanized. The barbarians on the other side make a treaty with Rome or they ask for Roman help. They do not consider that they are allied with Rome and they can renege that treaty because they didn't make a treaty. They asked for help and they got help. But that's, you know, expediency um, rather than binding for all time. What you get in the Roman sources is the idea that these Gothic and Ostrogothic tribes and Visigothic tribes betray the treaty. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's not their perspective. Perspective isn't that they had a treaty. They made a one-off deal to make, you know, life easier for them in the one-off occasion when they were needed it. And now they're invading Roman territory because it's expedient for them to do so. And they might make off a one-off deal in the future too. Um, whereas the Roman perspective is, no, you betrayed the treaty. Uh, and so, of course, because of our written sources, we get the Roman perspective rather than the um, the non-Roman perspective. And yet the, the non-Roman perspective of, no, now we're going to invade, now we're going to take this chunk of land and then we're going to keep moving, um, is this kind of and, and to take that rather exa- than expedient. And, and to take that example uh, one step further, for example, I, I think what, what you're hinting at in the sense is a cultural... Um, either misunderstanding of what they're actually doing. So in the Mediterranean world with the very sophisticated commerce and a diplomatic network and all those that are going back in a millennia almost where there's customs that you follow and you, you give gifts. So, you know, there, there, is, there is a way that 
in, in legal terms, a treaty is honoured in, in, in cultures across the Mediterranean. The further away from that you go, maybe there isn't quite the same sort of mental uh, infrastructure. If I, you oh, I don't know. I mean, if, if you look um, at... When you if, get to, for example... You, well, well, I was going to say, but let me say. So, for example, when you get to Britain under Presutagus, for example, he seems to think that he has a treaty with, I would imagine it's, uh, would it be Vespasian or whoever it is, um, and then when he dies, and, you've, and in the meantime, the Romans come to collect the, 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 the loan money that they've given them, it seems to be that Boudicca didn't seem to read the, the treaty that way, and then therefore there's a rebellion because the Romans imposed their punishment on her daughters. So I'm just wondering whether that was a willful misreading by Boudicca or whether that was genuine she didn't get it, perhaps. I think the Romans' way of dealing with treaties is very, very different to the rest of the Mediterranean. Like, if you look at Greek treaties, they aren't limited for all time. They are very, very limited. Sometimes there are summer, you know, we, we're at peace now, Tomorrow, you know, till next year after the harvest, and then we'll, we'll decide again whether we fight. You know, you do get these remarkable, you get these remarkable treaties of we're going to have 50 years peace. Wow, that's a long time. It only lasts 10, less than 10. Um, but I think the, the Romans imposing of their will on foreign people is very different from the rest of the Mediterranean's idea of what a treaty comes to. So I don't know that other people not understanding a cultural. I think it's Rome's, like you look at the influence, you know, in the, in the Carthaginians, they're imposing limits on others that if they breach, they've broken our treaty. But if we breach, we haven't broken our version of the treaty. Whereas if you look at other, other treaties, so I think the barbarian... The barbarian interpretation of the treaty absolutely is a cultural thing, but I don't think they're breaching any kind of millennia-long mores. I think it's very much the Romans interpreting as a breach, whereas if the Romans breach it, it's not a breach at all. There's a fascinating book, and I've struggled to find it, and, and, and I, I can let you know afterwards, But uh, and I used it because it, it's, a scholar has brought together all of the fragments of treaties that, that, that are extant, and I mean, you know, they, they do any modern lawyer proud. I mean, they, they, they just paragraph after paragraph of obligations. And, so on. and, and it, to your point, Murray, about sort of involving the responsibility of third parties. So, you know, A, A B and, and C. So, for example, you know, A and B have the treaty. But if they, B goes to war against C, well, they actually, you know, they, have, they either have to call on the one or they have to basically stand aside while the one goes and deals with it. So, it's, it's, so you're right. There is a controlling of, of, of influence in this, but, but to go back to the point, I think that's why they are successful, because they're, they're very good at being able to play this, this diplomatic game of chess, right, by controlling the pieces. And Absolutely, but I think, therefore, when the barbarians breach these treaties, they aren't breaching a treaty in their own sense. They're breaching a treaty in the Roman sense, and, of course, the Romans write the, law, write, write the, the history. So with the, we get the invasion idea as opposed to, no, there's a vast tract of land over there that's empty because they've just had a plague. Let's move our entire population across the Rhine and move in because it's empty. And they've like, you know, there's whole cities just waiting for us vacant. Um, that's just expediency. On, on, on the other hand, <laughs> you, you think, well, and well, as we just discussed before, that it's very likely that, the, you know, the Germans would know what the situation was with, uh, um, uh, in Rome, in, in the Empire, but they, you know, I'm, there surely must have been some kind of news, like you know, the the, the expedition that went into Ro into the Roman Empire a couple of years ago. You know, we they did that, and then the Romans came and burnt ever and killed everybody they could find. So, you know, there's there's treaty understandings, and there's. Um, 
uh, sort of experience that probably made it, you know, how are these Romans going to respond? Well, the last time somebody went en masse across the Rhine, this is what happened. We should we should maybe we should maybe start you know we've been talking for, we, should, we should maybe start to uh, think about winding things up now. I only have I only have two questions uh, left from people sent in and they bothered to send them in, so I you know I, I feel I should ask them. Although I'm not completely sure we haven't actually answered one of these. Uh, looking at these uh, uh, looking at these uh, raids of the third century, uh, Brian. Um, Finally got your question in, Brian. Are these Germanic raids conducted with the blessing of their leaders? Is there any hint of a more centrally organised sort of uh, centrally orga- central organisation behind these uh, raids than the Romans would admit? What the military leadership structure looked like in the in the in the third century AD uh, among Germanic tribes? Do we have uh, vision into that? We normally have kings or chieftains mentioned, so or, or claimants to to it, and they are again. The, I mean, one of the big issues that's pointed out is that Tacitus remains the go-to source for Germanic tribal structure right through until the Viking period. You know, you'll find people talking about particular chapters of Tacitus's um, Germania right through until the you know until 1026, um, which is crazy, really, but. It's the best source where you have a leader. They prove themselves. They gather to themselves loyal lieutenants who are therefore loyal to that leader and, you know, won't leave the field of battle if their leader dies and all of that. Um, So I think we've got vague ideas of structure, but nothing more than um, ways to make barbarian structure look like Roman structure so that the people reading the Roman sources can understand it. So the idea of heroic warriors with retinues makes sense to uh, to Roman readers and they can understand it, but um, we don't get specific terminology for units or tactics. We kind of do. You get the, you get the, um, I can't remember the term, but the, the wagon, the wagon um, circle at, uh, Adrianople, Carago, I think, is it Carago? I think it's Carago um, that's used. So there are vague, every now and then, mentions of something that seems to be foreign, but it's sort of been assimilated by the Roman sources. So finally, a question from Facebook. Um, it said that the Huns forced the Germanic peoples to move west and south into the Roman Empire borders. But what was that which set off the rise in raids and invasions before the Huns? Isn't that what we started? This well, whole I was going to say it's, it's sort of a circular, circular question, isn't it? Um, we have, we, we have really not given... my period, really. But I'm going to suggest I had heard somewhere, and you can trip me down in flames on this one, that there was some kind of either disease or, or climate change event, something like that, which was behind this. Yeah, we've got. How about how, how about this issue of the Huns? We have, the Huns. We haven't really mentioned about you know how much of an influence were they causing reds. They're mentioned. We get mentions of that, you know, they pushed us, they pushed them, they pushed them, and here we are crossing the Rhine. So you do get them kind of mentioned uh, in the in the fourth century onwards, um, until you know, obviously they they burst on the scene in the fifth century and, and destroy all. Um, you know, ancient astronaut theorists suggest um, to be controversial. Um, <laughs> 
that's my favorite phrase um you know but um i think i think it's it's so we don't know we don't and what what is the spark that leads to if it does begin with the huns or the the hun ancestors deciding to move uh to move westward we don't know what sparks that what sparks that kind of movement that then puts pressure on everyone else whether it's climate whether it's crops whether you know the the, the hunnic peoples were traditionally nomadic so the idea that it's crop pressure or you know it could be climate pressure it could be um the herds of their traditional yeah pasture pressure yeah so so i think all of those things are you know they're not written um anthropological and and sort of very vague to try and pinpoint um and they're you know they're, they're decades if not centuries of pressure because that's again when you start to look at the patterns going back to some things there have always been tribes pressuring to cross the rhine um then there's a, a you know there's like we said at the start there's then what looks to be centuries of quiet not necessarily because we, our sources sort of disappear uh, and then we get a sort of a reburgeoning when Rome weakens in the third century. So it's possible that those things have been happening throughout that period. Well, well, not knowing is perhaps a fitting place to uh, to wrap this up. What do we think? Uh, uh, that's a fitting place to end every podcast. Usually, <laughs> I don't want to put a hard border on it. Um, I want it, I want it to be a kind of semi semi permeable membrane. <laughs> yeah. permeable. <laughs> right shall we leave it there we're in between issues of the magazine for the next episode so we'll be hunting for a topic if you have a topic send it in and i'll put it to the guys to see what they're like the look of you can find us on patreon.com slash ancient warfare podcast so sh- uh shoot it over to shoot it over to us there uh or uh or you can use a facebook page uh, so it's thank you to Jasper, Lindsay, Murray, Mike and Mark. I'm Angus Wallace and thanks for listening. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.